Our journey through the book of Titus is coming to a close, and it continues to reveal God's direction for uh, leaders in the church. It's a pastoral epistle, as well as instructions for those in the church members. As I've shared before, it's interesting to see how the scope of this letter broadens out as you read it. Starting in chapter 1, the focus is on biblical leadership, on elders, and the, the chapter um, the opening of the chapter uh, talks about um, the importance of establishing qualified, spiritually gifted leaders in the church. And then in chapter 2, it broadens out a little bit further to include the testimony of everyone in the church and what it's supposed to look like. And in order for this to happen, Paul challenges Titus, as well as all shepherds, really, past, present, and future, to make sure that they keep speaking or teaching the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. In chapter 3, the letter expands to include the church's public testimony to the watching world. And so whether we're in our workplace, our schools, our neighborhoods, or any public place, God provides opportunities for us to be witnesses for Christ. Well, I have a question for you. What is the goal of our testimonies, both individually and corporately as a church? What is the goal? What aspect or dynamic of our testimony does the Lord hope that the watching world will see when they see the testimony of the church? There's actually more than one answer to that. But I want to submit a response that I believe that the Lord emphasizes throughout the scriptures. And it's this. It's the concept of unity. The biblical concept of unity is seen throughout the scriptures in words like fellowship, communion, sharing, participation, serving one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, and the list goes on and on. And the Apostle Paul expresses the essence of our unity in Ephesians 4 when the Holy Spirit led him to record verses 1 through 6 where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Unity, or the state of being one, is important to the Lord. In a world plagued with disunity, brokenness, corruption, selfishness, greed, pride, envy, strife, malice, betrayal, and deception, the testimony of the church and its unity is intended to stand in sharp contrast. And so it should come as no surprise whenever something or someone threatens or poses a threat to the unity of the church and the fellowship 
that the Lord prescribes a strong response so that it can be dealt with most effectively. And this is the case in the passage that we'll study today. Please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 and join me as I read verses 10 and 11 from the New American Standard. This is what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The title of today's message is in your bulletin. It is Handling Factious People, and our focus will be on verses 10 and 11. And as the sermon proposition indicates, we're going to be answering the question, how to handle factious people in the church? Thankfully, God does not leave us on our own with this question. In verses 10 and 11, God's discipline, God's directions, and God's description offer us some important insights. First, we'll take a look at God's discipline. We so often hear this expression, church discipline, that it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that it's really God's discipline. It's God's discipline, and the church is the instrument in which it gets carried out. So to answer the question, how to handle a factious person in the church, we need to look at what God has to say. In our first point in the outline, we're going to do just that. God says to reject a factious person. And we're going to answer two questions under this point. What does it mean to be factious? And what does it mean to reject such a person? In our second point, we're going to look at God's directions. In other words, what are the steps for the church to take when applying God's discipline? Depending on the sin that's being dealt with, there are instances where the dis discipline can involve as little as one step and as many as four steps in the process. And we're going to completely cover how many steps are to be applied when dealing with a factious person. Our third and final point shares God's description, specifically his description of a factious person. And it will be good for us to consider his perspective and how he views those who are divisive in the church. God's word provides three specific descriptions that I have labeled the facts about the factious. Such a person, verse 11 informs us, is perverted, sinning, and self-condemned. And we'll conclude our time by looking at three categories that expose factious people that should help us to see that being divisive just isn't limited to false teachers. We are answering the question together this morning, how to handle a factious person in the church. Let's tackle our first point together, which is this. God's discipline reject a factious person. Look at the beginning of verse 10. In the New American Standard Translation, it says, reject a factious man. The first question we need to answer is letter A in the outline. What does it mean to be factious? It's a word that we don't hear very much in our English vernacular. And the word divisive is probably a word that we're more familiar with. And this adjective, it's found only here in the New Testament, and it's being used to describe the word man. So literally, we're talking about a factious or a divisive man. The ESV translates it, a person who stirs up division, which I really like because being factious isn't gender specific. Both men and women are capable 
The root of the word describes one who possesses the power of choice. And the noun form of this word speaks of a self-chosen party or sect, or it could mean a self-chosen teaching. We derive our English word heresy from the Greek noun, which one commentator describes as, quote, divisions gathering around forms of individual self-will. So a factious person is one who founds or belongs to a self-chosen and divergent form of belief or practice. And I like how another commentator expresses this reality when he says, self-will always self-destructs. It's a good word. Though a factious person may be attempted to defend their position from Scripture in the end, it's pride that ultimately drives them to force their views and opinions on others. And they may even try to gain a following by forcing people to choose between their views and the views of the leadership of the church, thus creating parties or factions within. And by God's grace, I've been fortunate to serve at and attend churches where I haven't encountered uh, many factious people, but they do exist. I thought it would be good for us just to consider an example, so I thought of one. Imagine for a moment there's a person that comes to our church, and we get to know them a little bit, and after talking to, um, we'll call him a man for now, this, this man, um, it becomes apparent that he is reformed in his theology, he affirms the doctrines of grace, he uh, has gospel clarity and understands what it takes for a person to be saved, and there's a basis of fellowship right there. We would be encouraged by that. But after a while of him being here, we quickly notice that all he does is talk about the same thing over and over. He has this passion about being pro-life. And he's against abortion. And every conversation, people in the church quickly notice that it always goes back to a pro-life discussion. It always goes back to about what needs to be addressed about abortion. After a while of being here, he wants to make announcements from the pulpit about events related to being uh, things, pro-life events that he's organizing or maybe other people in the community are organizing. And maybe our church has a policy that we're not going to make specific announcements about such things. And so we have to, as an elder team, a leadership team, instruct him and say, listen, we, we appreciate your passion uh, for being pro-life, but we're, we're not going to be able to do that. And all of a sudden, he says, you're not going to make announcements? You're, you're not going to um, instruct people and let them know that they need to be um, engaged and active, you guys are in sin. You guys are sinning. You're, it's a, it's a, a sin of omission. You're not doing your part. And everyone else in the church, guess what? Who is not stepping up and who's not doing these things, you're not, they're not doing their part and they're in sin. That would be a real problem, wouldn't it? A real problem. This person I just am speaking of is being divisive. And a factious person's passion 
and conviction is usually what potentially blinds them. The danger starts when their belief becomes the singular lens in which they view all of life and all of ministry. And all of a sudden they funnel everything through this specific thing. And they accuse people and leadership of not caring, or worse yet, being in sin when they don't exercise the same belief or conviction that they have. And this leads to a critical spirit, perhaps of church leadership, maybe of members, or, or anyone who doesn't jump on board with their agenda. And eventually this stirs up divisions within the church. And here is how one commentator summarized factious people. They are, quote, opinionative propagandists who promote dissension by their pertinacity. There's a mouthful for you right there. All right. But, but boiling it down, putting this in layman's terms, we can simply say they're divisive at the core. They're, they're, they're divisive. And one experienced pastor said this, the factious person will not submit to the word or to godly leaders in the church. He is a law to himself and has no genuine concern for spiritual unity, end quote. And it's important to note that someone who is factious, that this is an ongoing characterization of the person, okay? This isn't an episode of somebody saying something that was divisive one time or um, somebody, um, you know, uh, causing a, a rift because they di- dif- disagree with, with the way something's being handled within ministry. A one-time event, or I would say even if the, a person a- has done a couple things, it doesn't qualify. A factious or divisive person is someone who is habitually driven by self-will and asserts or imposes their opinions and convictions on others, causing division and disunity in the church. And the emphasis needs to be on self-will. It's, it's on the choice. And when self-will supersedes God's will, that's when the problems are really going to begin and unity in the church will be compromised. Well, we're going to consider some more examples under our third and final point. But now that we know what it means, let's consider the discipline that God requires under our second point. What does it mean, uh, under our second subpoint uh, B, what does it mean to reject such a person? Notice the beginning of verse 10. It says, if you have the NAS, it says reject. There's a very strong response to a very dangerous threat to the church. And this is a command given directly to Titus, but one that involves the participation of the entire church that we'll see in just a bit. It can be translated a couple ways. In the ESV, it says, have nothing to do with, or as it is here in the NAS, reject. And the idea here is to cut a person off from fellowship, prohibiting their negative influence in the church. Just like cancer, sometimes the only option is to remove the tumor so that it does not infect and that it does not spread to the other parts of the body. God's discipline through the church is intended to quarantine the negative influence of a factious person. And this is a fitting illustration because I think that we would all agree that cutting a person 
out of the fellowship of the church is not a pleasant experience. Any more than it is to actually have to go in for surgery and schedule to have a tumor removed and for you, your body to be cut open and for it to be removed. It can be painful. And initially there will be some pain in the process, but as healing occurs in the end, this is what will allow unity and fellowship to remain healthy within the church. And so if we encounter a person who is factious in the church, it means that the person will need to be addressed. Now, this does require wisdom and discernment. And I like how one pastor expresses it and even uses the idea of cancer. He says church leaders will need to determine if the problem is just a cold or if it's cancer. Not all division in a church means that someone is being factious, nor does it mean that every critical comment or disagreement is going to result in division in the church. A healthy church is full of people who occasionally disagree, but are able to do it excuse me, maturely. When a serious issue arises, the leaders need to prayerfully discern whether the situation is more like a cold or more like cancer. A cold may be uncomfortable, but will quickly go away on its own. Cancer won't disappear without aggressive treatment. So discernment needs to be applied. If the situation is life, isn't life-threatening to the church, leave it alone. If it is potentially cancerous, it will need to be confronted directly. What a good, good illustration, a good picture for us on discernment. So this leads to the question, how is it to be confronted? And this is where we need to transition to God's directions under our second point, which is God's directions, how to reject a factious person. Not all sin is dealt with the same in God's eyes. And though it's true that just one sin is enough to keep somebody out of the presence of a holy God and enough to condemn them forever, God's response to sin varies in degree of punishment. Just as believers will be rewarded according to their faithfulness to the Lord in heaven, as mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10, so it will be for unbelievers who will also be judged and punished according to their deeds, as mentioned in Revelation 20.12, where the great and small, those who were, were wicked, they will be judged accordingly. And heaven is a great reward, amen? Right? But it, it, just as there will be opportunities for, for those that walked in faithfulness and those who serve the, the Lord and the scriptures teach that they're going to be rewarded accordingly, the same is true on the opposite end of the spectrum that hell is punishment for everyone, but there's going to be different uh, degrees of punishment set up for, for you know, I think we, it's always the Hitler and the Joseph Stalin that get mentioned, but the extreme examples versus, you know, uh, gr- grandma who, uh, quote unquote, uh, was viewed as a good person by society, but never trusted in the Lord for salvation. So important to see that because this helps us see the reality and the practice of God's discipline in the church as some sins are dealt with more severely. Sometimes it might only involve one step in the immediate removal of someone from the fellowship of the church, which is exactly what took place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
There are cases involving gross immorality where God requires immediate church discipline. And the elders must discern what level of discipline the Lord would have them apply. Most of us are familiar with the four-step process prescribed in Matthew 18. Some of you may not be, or maybe you have no church background, so it's worth me talking about this. There's a four-step process in uh, Matthew chapter 18 that talks about how um, sin and offenses are to be handled in the church. And if somebody sins against you, the Bible, Jesus, these are words straight from the Lord's mouth in Matthew 18, says that you're to go to that person and to show them their fault in private and to let them know that 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 sin, that offense, caused a fracture or a break in your relationship. And the scripture teaches that if they repent, that is, that if they they um, they're, they're a believer and they, they um, say, will you forgive me for that offense? It says that you've won your brother. And we praise God because there's restoration that takes place. If they don't repent, then it goes to what's called step two. And this is where the person who was offended would bring either one or two uh, people with them to go confront the person about their offense and their sin. Here again, it says that if they, in Matthew 18, if they repent, then you've, you've won your brother. But at this point, if the sinning person still refuses to repent, then this involves moving to step three. And here, church leadership is required to inform the church so that the church can corporately pray and pursue the unrepentant person. If the person repents, and we all get to praise God together. If they refuse to repent, then step four would be applied, which involves them being removed. Or if we want to borrow a word from Titus chapter 3, verse 10, they'll be rejected from the fellowship of the church. And again, this is painful when this occurs, heart-wrenching for everyone involved, but it's what the Lord requires. It's his discipline, and the church is carrying out. And, and the reason why we do this is for the purity and the protection of the church. When the world and outsiders look at the church, the, the, the testimony of the church is to be one of unity, of working together and striving in unity. They... They don't need to become a part of the church to get more division and factiousness. They, they get enough of that out in the world on their own, right? So they're looking to the church, and that is to be the testimony of the church. And it's for the sake of purity and protection of the church. And it's also God's desire for the unrepentant person to be protected from himself or herself by exposing their deception. So really, they're deceived, and the, the point is that, that, that the reason why God would discipline them is so that uh, the church could help them to see how they're being deceived. Well, this now leaves us with God's directions for a factious person. What does he describe? Notice verse 10. The logical way to read this verse would be, after a first and second warning reject a factious person. The ESV says, after warning him once and then twice. And these warnings reveal the first two steps of how God would have the church confront such a person 
which are subpoints A and B in your outline. And this word warning is a compound word composed up of mind and to put. So the root idea is of putting something into someone's into their mind. It has this sense of instruction along with admonition. Very important. It's not just going, hey, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. It's actually going to the person informed. Obviously, if they're in sin, you want to be armed with the scriptures that uh, help them to see the sin that they're responsible for. And it's to come with a spirit of instruction and, and to provide the mirror of God's word. Really, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing when you would bring the word. You're, you're holding it up and you're, you're using it as a mirror for them to look into. For them to see, help them to know uh, exactly what it is that God would have them see as well. Such warnings should be direct so that the person knows exactly what he or she is being confronted about. It is didactic in the sense that a person is being instructed with truth in addition to pointing out their error. It's also redemptive in that it's seeking to restore such a person to the fellowship with God and with the church. And so it's not to go, you know, load the, the shotgun and blast somebody. The, 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 in fact, you're, I, I would discourage for those that might have to warn somebody that there needs to be a great deal of heart preparation that goes into that before that takes place. That, you, that you're able to go in a spirit of humility and gentleness and allow them to see the, the, the significance of what's taking place, okay? The significance of their sin. While this verse demands strong action, we should not miss the spirit of hope with which these warnings are to be undertaken. And a pastor shared this story about um, a, a, the wife of one of the deacons in his church, and apparently the deacon's wife was threatening the harmony of the church with her constant murmuring and grumbling behind the scenes. She is what Paul called a busybody and was creating unrest. Rather than just let it slide, the chairman of the elders approached her husband. The husband was a church officer, and it didn't seem right to confront his wife without his knowledge. The chairman said to him, quote, the elders are concerned about a problem in the church. Your wife is criticizing the vision of the church, which the elders have determined is God's will. Her criticism is divisive and is hurting the church. It needs to stop. What do you suggest we do? This deacon was able to shepherd his wife in a humble and gracious manner, and by God's grace, the grumbling ceased and unity was maintained. And we praise God for stories like this, where things were done in the right way, where sometimes maybe even the effective warning that even needs to come from Somebody even within the family, maybe even your own spouse comes to deliver it. God working in and convicting those who might be responsible for divisions in the church. And it goes without saying that all of us, right? All of us, because we're sinners, have the capacity to be divisive. It's just the truth of our sin. Sin divides. Okay? Humility and a sin-filled life divides, a spirit-filed life unites. That's how it works. And our recognition of sin and our need for repentance 
is what allows unity to be maintained. And we rejoice in, in Christ's work through the gospel that frees us from a life of division. And maybe you were somebody, as you look back on the past of your life, maybe you were somebody who was factious. Maybe you were divisive. Maybe not in the church, but in your family, in your workplace, your, your attitude just really pushed people away. Your opinions dominated. You were self-willed, right? I think it's a, we can all relate as unbelievers. It's a, a description of us all. So this should enable, you know, when we consider this reality, enable us to be sensitive to any division that we have with others in the church. God save the church so that believers could be a testimony of unity to each other as well as the watching world. And next Sunday, we actually have Communion Sunday. And in preparation of our celebration of community, nothing honors the Lord more than to make sure that unity exists in the church. And so that if you're offset with somebody in the church, which is a possibility considering the number of people that we have, that if there's a, a fracture or a breakdown in a relationship with somebody, that this, could, this week could serve as an opportunity for you to go to that person and honor the Lord through your repentance of any sin that you are responsible for. Maybe you've been, it's a possibility, but maybe you've been critical of the leadership of the church. Maybe you've been critical of me. It's possible. I would have you know this. I hope that you would come to me. You want to know why? Because I would forgive you in a New York minute. Because I love every single person in this church. And I understand that it's difficult sometimes. It's hard to submit to leadership. And, and there, there's magnitude, right, with some of the decisions that need to be made. It's hard. It's hard. It tests us and it, and it can stress us at times. And, you know, this is, I'll just throw this in. This is really one of the reasons why we have our annual state of the church meeting so that we can talk about what's taking place in the church, what's taking place in the ministries of the church. And we do the SWOT analysis in our care group setting. We talk about the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats in, in the ministry. And, and, and I think it's fantastic because the elders, we, we want to hear from you. We want to give you an avenue so that you can say those things. But I'm inclined to think that, you know, hopefully um, I'm approachable enough and Huey Hyun and Francis are as well that if there are challenges just as it relates to ministries in the church or m maybe it's just in personal life that we would be accessible and that we would be able to, to talk to you about those things. And we, we, we want to be on guard. And we may not be a factious person, but it's possible that maybe there are occasions where where a divisive spirit or an antagonistic spirit just seems to keep rising up with, within and you, you, you're carrying the weight of that let's work together let's let's allow us to shepherd you allow us to team up and let's talk and pray things through so that your heart can be settled and be encouraged well let's get back on track here Paul calls for a first and second occurrence of admonitions. And they're listed together in the verse, and it should be noted that there needs to be a space of time between these warnings to allow the factious person 
time to process the warnings and prayerfully consider how the Lord would have them respond. And if after both warnings have been given and the steps mentioned in letters A and B of the outline and the church leaders are convinced this person still poses a threat to the harmony and the unity of the church and is unrepentant, then letter C or step three is the only option left. If there is no repentance, God calls the church to discipline. God, God calls the church to discipline the divisive person. Paul says, after both warnings, have nothing to do with the person. They're cut off from the fellowship of the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, and if a person refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So in an extreme case, a person who refuses to repent after two warnings would need to be told by the elders that they're no longer a member of the congregation. What does this look like practically? Well, members can still speak to the person and be kind to them, just as you would to an unbeliever, or using scriptural reference, a pagan or a tax collector. But you don't treat the person as a member of the fellowship. They no longer have opportunities to serve in the church, nor do they have the privileges that would be extended to other members of the church by, by means of membership. The person is no longer to dis, they're not allowed to disciple. They're not allow, allowed to lead and to teach due to their unrepentant sin. And it's not uncommon for church leaders to get nervous about exercising church discipline. It can be uncomfortable. And I think it's fair to say that most of us would be uncomfortable in, in those situations, right? It's, it's hard. It's hard to have to, when things come to a point. No church leader or no elder team likes to play the role of villain or being perceived as being ungracious or unkind. Church discipline is a difficult matter because there are always going to be those who have emotional connections and relationships with the person who might be undergoing discipline. Some may even feel sorry for the person and urge others in the church to show grace and mercy, not judgment. But to be effective, discipline has to be uniformly enforced by the church leadership as well as its members. If some members continue to fellowship with the person under discipline, then the discipline of being put outside of the fellowship will be severely undermined. It's the same as those who are parents in the room. It's the same as, as with your kids. Your kids have you right where you want to. If your parents, if you, if you're not aligned parents in your discipline, right, and one person goes to mom and one person goes to dad and they're getting two different stories, right? We we know the challenge, right? And kids know exactly how to play that card. And so the same is is true if, if mom and dad agree and if church leadership and church members don't agree, a factious person uh, with the situation with a factious person, then there's going to be issues. And we want to make sure that unity and 
practice among church leadership and members are united when disciplining a sinning member. Here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say about Titus 3.10. He, he says, when it comes to unbelief of, a fundamental, of fundamental and vital doctrines, we who are like Titus set in office over a church must deal with such deadly evils with a strong hand. A man that is a heretic, one who really turns aside from the truth and sets up something contrary to the word of God, what is to be done with him? Burn him, says the church of Rome. Fine him, put him in prison, say other churches. But the apostle Paul, under inspiration, says only this. Just exclude him from the church. That is all. Leave him his utmost liberty to go where he likes, believe what he likes, and do what he likes. But at the same time, you as a Christian people must disown him. That's all you ought to do, except to pray and labor for his restoration. Ah, powerful, powerful. God's discipline and directions in the first two points, they're not easy pills to swallow. They're not. Yet there are reasons that warrant such a strong response that cannot be overlooked. And I think as we're going to see under our third point, it'll help us to see this when we look at God's description things to know about a factious person. Let's read verse 11 together. It says, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And here God's word provides three descriptions about a divisive person, which are labeled the facts about the factious and the subpoint. And it'll, it'll serve us just to take a brief look at each of these. These terms are speaking to the qualitative nature of such a person. And the first fact about the factious person, according to God's word, is that the person is perverted. And usually the word perverted reminds people of sexual humor or something sexual that's abnormal, but this isn't the meaning here. This verb is only used here in the New Testament, and it's a compound word composed of the words out and to turn. And it literally means to turn inside out or to turn from. And over time, it came to signify twisting or distorting something. And in the Greek, it's describing someone who at some point in the past turned away from the truth and has now come to remain in such a condition. It's describing a factious person's relationship to the truth. They, they're, they're twisting it. It's warped. I think the, actually the ESV uses the word warped in, in, in the verse. It's, it, that's exactly what it is. They've, they've twisted the truth so that it serves self-will and, and their own purposes. The, the, the scriptures are interpreted the way they think they need to be interpreted, not the way the church thinks they, or the leadership, or members, right? It's been twisted. You may recall the example that I shared earlier in the sermon of the pro-life person. He distorted the truth by saying church leadership and members didn't care about abortion and didn't care about making a difference as it related to that. It was presumptuous. It was a distortion of the truth. And this is what factious people do by twisting and warping the truth. Well, the second fact about the factious, according to God's description, is that they're sinning. And this is a verb that's used by Paul and New Testament writers throughout the New Testament 
And most in the room would understand that sin means missing the mark. And that's exactly what this verb means right here. And the present tense points to the ongoing nature of a factious person's sin as he remains in deception and continues his ongoing and divisive ways. We will always and must always keep in mind that there is a regular pattern of such a person's life. It's not, again, a one-time occurrence or something that happens periodically. And as a result, their sin drives a wedge into the fellowship and the unity of the church. And God cherishes unity in the church. He does. And anything that attempts to drive a wedge, and really can be said of um, all sin, that has potential to drive a wedge in, in the church, but uh, the, the, the factious person, and this is why it's even amped up to, um, it's not four steps, it's, it's three steps. Those warnings are given because it needs to be dealt with right away. It's really going to have a negative impact on the church. Well, there's a third fact of the factious, and it's this. So they're self-condemned. God's final description of the factious, along with their perversion and their sinning, takes place with the person being self-condemned. And in the Greek, it describes this as the ongoing state of such a person. And Paul uses a rare compound word here. It's actually made up of three words. Self, against, and judge. It's a combination of all those words. And it can literally be interpreted, judge against self, or just as our verse renders it, self-condemned. And listen to the, this, this powerful statement that one commentator shares. Church discipline is the collective affirmation of the sentence already handed down by the culprit himself. Church discipline is the collective affirmation of the sentence already handed down by the culprit itself. It could actually be said that the only person responsible on the, on, on the receiving end of God's discipline through the church is the person undergoing the discipline. They, they are the ones. It, it, it is self-inflicted in every single way. They are the ones responsible. And at the end of the day, that's who is going to be held responsible and who God is going to hold responsible. And any, excuse me, any verdict that Titus or leaders in the church make of such a person is only secondary to the one that has already been pronounced over himself by his actions. And though a factious person will oftentimes point the finger. It's the church leader's fault. It's the member's fault. It's this person's fault. In the end, what does God do? The mirror of that word is going to be held up, and God is the one, right, who's going to allow them to see that that finger should be pointing right back at themselves. Well, this brings us to letter B, and our, our third point in the outline is just going to provide, I hope this is practical. I wanted to include this for you. Um, because it's not necessarily based um, directly out of our verse, but I thought it would be a help to see the categories that expose factious people. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but I thought to gain a sense of what being factious could look like practically, it would be good to see some more examples. The first category in, in your notes under subpoint B, uh, number one, is false teaching. And earlier in his letter, in Titus 1.11, Paul told Titus to silence those who were ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And so we, we would see this 
potentially even in the teaching form with, within the church. If a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher began saying that there was nothing wrong with people living together before they were married or that a person must speak in tongues in order to prove that they're sealed by the Holy Spirit or that believers can lose their salvation or something, you know, that's just an example. That teaching would be flagrantly divisive. That would be a big problem, and it would need to be addressed right away. And though false teachers are notorious for causing factions, the instruction in this passage provided by Paul is actually casting a broader net to include anyone in the church who is divisive and disruptive to the fellowship of the church. And we'll see this in the final two categories. The second category to expose division is immoral pursuits. When somebody intentionally, intentionally and flagrantly flaunts um, their immoral behavior in the face of the church and refuses to repent, it can be a great source of division. And this is exactly what was taking place in 1 Corinthians 5 when there was the, the leaders were being chastised actually by the Apostle Paul for not confronting a man in the church who was living in incest. Now, there's a, a flagrantly immoral situation in the church. The whole congregation will be negatively impacted and it will need to be confronted. And there's other immoral pursuits that arise. And as difficult as they might be, they must be dealt with. Well, the third category that often exposes factious people is contentious spirits. And this category is a little bit more subtle, but it's just as dangerous. I mentioned it earlier, but some people have antagonistic spirits. And are always stirring up dissension. Maybe it's gossip. Spreading rumors. And if there are instances where rumors are traced back to the same person within the church, it's probably a clear indication that we're dealing with a factious person, a contentious spirit. Perhaps it's criticism. There are people in churches who um, sit on the ministry sidelines and they're critical of the ministries that are taking place in the church because they're not what they would prescribe. They're not what they would do. And so they become very critical and begin to grumble and complain about the ministries. And what I've noticed about people, and I I have seen people like this in in prior ministries, is that they you know, they don't, they just complain, but they don't do anything. You want to see change? Man, grab a shovel. You know what I mean? Well, not to hit anybody with, okay, not the grumblers, right? But, you know, get, get to work. Let's, 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 let's make the change. You want to see a difference? Or I wish we, that we did uh, things this way? Well, you know, present the idea. Talk about it. See what opportunities the Lord might have for you. Sometimes the contentious spirit can divide by open rebellion by saying things like, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to withdraw my financial support from the church. Really? Wow. Like, there's a major shepherding opportunity. Why? Because our giving is unto the Lord. Our giving is unto the Lord. It is an act of worship to Him. 
yeah, it gets used for the church, and I'm going to stop. Basically, what that person just said is, I'm going to stop worshiping the Lord because you aren't going to do, do what I asked you to do, really. That's, that's really... And so, oh, it's so hard to see examples and hear stories about how divisive people have negatively impacted the unity and the fellowship of churches, yet... I want to end on this message, on really on an encouraging note. We serve a God who provides all of the wisdom. All the wisdom that a church, uh, that we need as a church to love those who are factious by being faithful to God's discipline and directions from his word. And God himself has provided the church with a pattern of discipline. And this pattern is one of fatherly love. And it gets spelled out for us in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews reveals this truth in Hebrews 12, that God disciplines those whom he loves. Love and discipline are vitally connected. And the world often views discipline as the expression of anger and hostility. But according to scripture, God's discipline is the expression and the outworking of his love. And I was just thinking about this, just even as it related to those who are factious, that even the safety net in God's word that he provides even through sending people from within the church to provide warnings. It's his love. It's his love. It's his passion and its desire that if somebody may, might, might even find out that they're not even genuinely saved, maybe they prove themselves to be an unbeliever because of their divisive nature, that God doesn't just let it be. That he sends messengers. So encouraging. Well, those of us who are in Christ, we know that God does save us from being divisive, does he not? In our marriages, in our families, in our workplace. That's the power of Christ. Through the gospel, he can change a heart. Maybe you're someone here today and you, you, you find that you're, you're always at odds in your relationships, maybe with your parents, maybe with friends. Maybe the Lord would use this as an opportunity for you allowed to take a deep look into the mirror of his word and see whether or not your heart has been changed by the Lord. Are you all in for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner and that you need God's forgiveness and that you need to turn from doing things your own divisive ways and to trust his ways and allow him to be the Lord of your life, to govern your life. That's where life is. That's where unity is. That's where fellowship is. And if you've never done that, let today be the day. Don't continue. That list that I read at the beginning disunity, evil, strife, envy, malice, hatred. It's all out there in the world. And those of us who have been saved, we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in Christ because of what he's done. And I pray that God protects our church. Ask and solicit that you would also pray from our church that God would protect us and continue to protect us from divisive or factious people in our ministries. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, it's a sobering look to look at your response to a factious person. And yet we are so thankful that we can have the opportunity to see what you have to say. Really, in the end, we want to honor you in the process. And we're so thankful that you safeguard and preserve the unity of the church. It's your kindness to do so. You want us united in our fellowship with you. You want us to be able to have clear communication and an open channel to your grace abundantly supplied to us. We just pray, Father, that you would continue to allow us to be sensitive, to look into the mirror of your word and to see if there's any wicked way, if there's any divisive way, any factiousness in our own life that we need to repent of in our marriages and our families. Maybe it's our extended families after the holidays that you would be at work and that you would convict and show us how it is that we can make things right and honor you with our repentance and pursuing unity for your namesake. Lord, we rejoice that you are a God of mercy and that you're long-suffering and you're patient. And there are those who may not know you, those who are living life on their own as the rest of the world runs and sprints from you wanting nothing to do with you. Or simply just acknowledging you on occasion when you want to be the Lord lives. You want to help us. You want to protect us and purify us. So I just pray that you'd be doing a great work in the hearts of those that don't believe in drawing people to yourself and allow them to come to faith, the true knowledge of faith, the true knowledge of Christ who paid the penalty for our sin and who lived the life that we could never live. And that if we trust in him completely, that we can have his perfect righteousness credited to our account. And that's the only way that anyone can ever stand before you. Pray that you would allow us to see everyone who can hear the sound of my voice. That it would echo in their ears today and throughout all the days ahead that we, that we need your forgiveness. We need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. Thank you for this study. We pray that you'll bless uh, Huey and uh, help the equipping hour to be one that also encourages us just as it relates to our ongoing efforts to deal with sin and to make disciples. We look forward to seeing how you bless that time together. In Jesus' name, amen.